I'm Emily Rowney. And I'm Alicia Holland. This is Bill Camp, the voice of Forensic Files 2 on HLN, and you're listening to Murder in the Rain. I think most of us realize that we have it pretty good. COVID has taught us that we can get through a very difficult time. Layoffs, major changes to our daily patterns, school at home, and total isolation. Many of us haven't seen more than a handful of people in over a year now, and we're the lucky ones. Today, I'll illuminate just how good we have it, that a year without a few comforts is easily survivable. We haven't even begun to breach the surface of what a tough time is and what a human can withstand. Today's case is horrific, and it has it all. Kidnapping, captivity, abuse, rape, and murder. Before we dig into the case, I'd like to set the stage with a bit of psychological knowledge. Most of us true crime fanatics are well-versed with what Stockholm Syndrome is, but in case you aren't familiar or need a refresher, let's do a quick overview. Stockholm Syndrome is the name given to a psychological response to protect one's psyche from abuse or captivity. The victim will form a special bond with their abuser or captor as a defense mechanism. The syndrome, originally called Normalmstrog, was widely recognized after a bank robbery that occurred in Stockholm, Sweden in 1973. A parolee named Jan Erik Olsen went to the Kreditbanken, a large bank in Stockholm, and took four people hostage. He held them there for a total of six days. When police were finally able to intervene and rescue the hostages, none of them would testify against Jan. A criminologist and psychiatrist named Nils Bejerot started studying this situation heavily. The theory of Stockholm Syndrome was born from the idea that it was a special type of brainwashing that occurred in these types of scenarios. Using the example of a hostage situation, we can break Stockholm Syndrome down to understand it with four primary components. Firstly, the hostage and the captor have had no previous relationship. They would be strangers until the hostage situation. Then, the hostage begins to develop positive feelings toward the captor during their time together. What then results is the hostage's refusal to turn in the captor or work against them with police or other authorities. They're beginning to side with the captor. And finally, they no longer see them as the primary threat. They have taken on the captor's beliefs and point of view. In current times, Stockholm Syndrome developed beyond the original definition and has been a reaction from many victims in an assortment of situations, human trafficking, religious oppression, and sexual abuse. Stockholm Syndrome became very well known when it was used in court after the 1975 arrest of Patty Hearst. Hearst was kidnapped and held hostage by the Symbionese Liberation Army. She eventually adopted their beliefs and denounced her own family. She was arrested after robbing a bank for the SLA. She went to trial and her defense attorney used Stockholm Syndrome to explain how someone from a prominent family such as Patty can abandon all previous beliefs and take on a new persona. She was sentenced to prison for seven years, but it was commuted and eventually President Bill Clinton pardoned her for her actions because she wasn't practicing her own free will. Stockholm Syndrome also made major headlines in today's case. Cameron Hooker was born on November 5, 1953, in Alturas, California. He was described as an overall happy child who often made other kids laugh, but that happy-go-lucky personality wouldn't last long. 
The Hooker family moved around a lot so his father could work various jobs and sawmills and construction before settling into Red Bluff, California when Cameron was in his teens. By then, he started to withdraw into himself. He avoided social gatherings and entered his awkward phase at school with his gangly limbs and thick glasses. He led a pretty mundane and unseen life. Most of the time, he just focused on woodworking and shop class, a place where he excelled. What people didn't know is that behind those quiet eyes brewed curiosities for things that weren't something a teenage boy should be thinking about. Cameron Hooker was 19 and graduated from high school when he met 15-year-old Janice. She was described as a quiet and unattractive girl with frizzy brown hair. Janice didn't have a lot of experience with men. In fact, she reflected on how all she ever wanted was for a nice, good-looking, tall boy to take interest in her. It was clear that at an early age, Janice adopted a submissive nature and responded positively when anyone showed her any kind of attention. Her inexperience and malleable personality type navigated to Cameron like a moth to the flame. Before long, he was introducing her to sexual desires he had kept hidden from people. He liked to cause pain to his sexual partners. He told her he wanted to handcuff her and suspend her from a tree in the woods. He said other girls let him do that to them. Janice didn't like this, and she was scared of it, but after he had his way with her, he was incredibly affectionate, so to her, it was worth it. She didn't want to lose the only man that seemed to show her any interest. And that's not to say BDSM is bad, but boundaries, that's right. abusive. There's a difference between consensual BDSM and forcing it on a girl who's never had a sexual partner. Right. While she felt uncomfortable with some of his sexual proclivities, she continued to participate. Perhaps she thought in time, once they were married, those desires would fade for him. But unbeknownst to Janice then, they would only grow worse. The pair was married on January 18, 1975, when young Janice was still a naive 18-year-old girl. Marriage didn't subdue Cameron's interest in sadomasochism. Instead, it escalated. He began to whip and choke Janice. He even submerged her underwater to control her breathing. As shocking as that sounds to someone like me, it's pretty common behavior for sadomasochists. They'll do things like shock, cut, and humiliate people to get sexual fulfillment. But for a lot of people, that's a very foreign concept. Over time, Janice grew very tired of this. She loved Cameron and desperately wanted to be with the side of him that was loving and affectionate. But she really wanted to avoid the rest. The one thing that Janice wanted beyond anything else was a child. When she talked to Cameron about this, he said the only way he would give her a child is if he could also have a slave girl. This was a regular conversation for the two of them. She would inquire about having a child. He would offer his suggested compromise. He explained to her that a slave girl would allow him to continue his needs and it would give her a break from the pain. After years of abuse, that deal didn't look so bad. In 1976, Janice got the baby she always wanted, but that meant that Cameron would be cashing in soon. On May 19, 1977, Cameron, Janice, and their baby girl were out for a drive around Red Bluff, California. In the back seat was another passenger, a homemade wooden box that weighed about 20 pounds, a box that Cameron was waiting to open at just the right moment, and his moment was about to arrive. Colleen Stan was born in Riverside near the Orange Groves of California. She lived with her mother and two sisters and visited her father on the weekends. Her parents, who had divorced, eventually remarried and had additional children. 
In her early teens, Colleen started to disagree with her mother and stepfather more and more, so around 14 years old, she moved in with her father. When Colleen was a senior in high school, she met a man and decided to drop out of school and get married. The marriage lasted only a few months before the two parted ways. Later that year, a couple of friends and her decided they wanted a change and a little bit of adventure, so they moved to Eugene, Oregon. On May 19, 1977, 20-year-old Colleen decided to make her way to Westwood, California for a friend's birthday via hitchhiking. Along the I-5, hitchhiking was a common practice in these days, and within a few hours, Colleen had easily found rides to Red Bluff, California. She now had about an hour and a half drive until she was in Westwood with her friends. As she waited for her next ride along Antelope Boulevard, a young couple stopped to inquire where she was going. The two were not traveling as far in that same direction, so they left her on the side of the road and went on their way. Next, she declined an offer from a car full of men who offered to drive her all the way to Westwood. As a young woman, this was a serious safety concern, but little did she know that that would have been her safest option that day. Instead, a few minutes later, Colleen watched as a small blue Dodge pulled up to offer her a ride. She accepted it. After all, the occupants were a normal-looking young couple with a baby on the young mother's lap. Colleen sat in the back of the car next to an odd wooden box, and the couple made awkward conversation with her. She noticed that the man was staring at her weird in the mirror, but she stifled her concerns as she knew the drive wasn't very long. The couple asked Colleen a lot of questions about where she was from, where she was going, and she answered them politely without asking them questions about themselves. Soon, the man suggested that they make a short pit stop. He said there were some ice caves nearby, and they intended to check them out that day, and it would only take a few more minutes. Despite not seeing any signs off the highway about the caves, Colleen said that would be fine. They pull off down a secluded road, park the car, and the woman takes the child out of the car and heads to a nearby stream to play in the water. That's when suddenly Colleen is startled by the man pulling out a knife and climbing into the back seat with her. Within moments, her hands are handcuffed behind her back, and the man is putting something over her head, some sort of leather mask, and then a heavy box, the one that sat beside her in the car. The box was wooden, and inside there was padding and carpet. He then laid Colleen down in the back seat and covered her with her own sleeping bag. The family quickly piled back into the car and drove until the sun went down. When they were finally surrounded by darkness, they decided to drive Colleen back to their home. Cameron and Janice Hooker lived at 1140 Oak Street in Red Bluff, a little residential area where neighbors were just a few feet from each other. Under the cloak of darkness, Cameron took a blindfolded girl from the back seat of his car and led her into his basement. Colleen's nightmare began when the small box from the car was locked on her head and she was driven away by strangers. But now the true terror really begins. Cameron strips Colleen of all her clothing and fastens her arms up to restraints hooked in the ceiling. This was later known as the rack, the place he would now bring Colleen to begin whipping her undressed body daily. Here she remains for hours. She's able to catch glimpses of her surroundings through a sliver in her blindfold. She sees the basement floor, a view she will get incredibly familiar with. She sees magazines depicting naked women in bondage on a table nearby. And then she sees the couple who abducted her, having sex right there in her eyeline. Once the couple had finished, Cameron took Colleen out of her restraints 
and replaced the heavy box back onto her head. He then forced her into another box, a square box with a hole cut in the top. The box was for her body. So to visualize this, her body is placed in a larger square box, her head sits through the hole, and then the smaller box is placed on her head. Almost, not to minimize it, but almost like a magician's box kind of a thing. Small, but very, very small. But that same idea where like the head is coming out the end. Yes, but uh, yes, but vertically. Oh, so okay. she's like she's in standing. a box with her head on the top. Oh, okay, yeah. gotcha. Inside the box, her wrists and feet are chained to hooks. That's where Colleen is left for hours. For roughly an hour each day, she could exit the box, and that's when she was allowed to use a bedpan, eat a single meal, and have a single glass of water. This went on for five months. It was hard to know the time of day, but usually Colleen could mark the passing of time based on her regular torture. When she wasn't chained inside the wooden boxes, she was taken out to be restrained on a table or whipped on the rack. The man, Cameron Hooker, had shocked her with electrical cords and even burned her pubic area with a heat lamp after exposing her skin to the light for hours. He seemed to regularly find new ways to hurt her. Another torture that Cameron enjoyed was his homemade stretching device. He would place Colleen on a table and fasten her wrists and ankles to chains that he would then slowly stretch apart. This became known as the stretcher. While Cameron submitted Colleen to his tortures, he would document it all by taking photos. During the first few months of captivity, she never bathed. She wasn't allowed to. It wasn't until Cameron couldn't take the stench anymore that he finally took her out and upstairs to the bathroom. But rather than allow her to shower or take a bath, he had to make it a torture. He forced her underwater so she couldn't breathe. This was something that appeared to be a regular occurrence that he enjoyed, something Janice had also endured herself. When Colleen was later asked about this time, she estimated to police that during the first six months of her captivity with the hookers, Cameron had hung her up and whipped her roughly 90 to 100 times. Doing some quick math, that's roughly every other day. After a few months of being confined to the basement, Hooker built another box. This box was a little bit larger and triangular in shape. It fit beneath the stairs. This box was a little bit larger and triangular in shape. It fit underneath the stairs and could house Colleen in a sitting position. This is where Cameron would confine her to do manual labor. The hookers realized that they could make a little bit of money off of Colleen. She would sit in the box they dubbed the workshop at night and shell nuts for them. They would then sell them at a local market. This was the only time of day that she could have her blindfold removed from her head. By January of 1978, Cameron introduces her to a new kind of torture, a brainchild of his inspired by a BDSM magazine he liked. He described to Colleen that he was part of a group called The Company. This was a large group of high-powered slave owners, very dangerous men from all over the world. He explained to her that he could protect her and improve her life if she were to willingly submit herself to him as a slave for life with a legally binding contract. Of course, this was not actually legally binding. He told her that if she didn't, they would likely kill her and her family. You see, these men were watching everyone and they knew everything about her and the people in her life. He then presented Colleen with a contract, one that she didn't realize he had made himself. On it, he called himself Michael Powers. In the contract were the rules if she were to become a slave. 
She must call him master or sir. His wife becomes ma'am. She serves him in his every desire. She's not allowed to look at him in the eye, and she cannot wear undergarments. But more importantly, she has to do everything he tells her to without comment. From then on, she's known as K, like the letter. Colleen believed everything Cameron said and feared for her life, so she signed. As time went on, Cameron would spin stories about what the company was capable of as a way to keep Colleen compliant. He told her about a disobedient slave who ran away, and as punishment, she was dismembered by the company. Another time, he took advantage of a knee surgery his wife had by telling Colleen that Janice, who was also a slave, was in trouble with the company for her disobedience, and they hurt her leg to keep her in line and remind her that she is a slave. Now that the contract was signed, things changed in the household. Colleen knew the tension was building with Jan, who was clearly jealous that Cameron was sexually interested in her. One night when Janice was out, Cameron brought Colleen out from the basement and into his bedroom. He then raped her. Now the deal was that he could keep a slave in exchange for giving Janice another baby. But his master-slave relationship was not to be sexual. He was only to have sex with his wife. The slave was there for physical brutality that he claimed he required. Because of this rule, Cameron would rape Colleen in secret when Janice was out of the house. Initially, he avoided penetrating her and limited his rape to oral and penetration with objects. But soon he couldn't resist and he was raping her regularly, never forgetting to wear a condom to ensure she wouldn't get pregnant. After having Colleen in captivity for 11 months, Cameron started to worry about their presence in the residential neighborhood. He decided to move the family into a mobile home in a rural and secluded part of Red Bluff on Perishing Road. This move required a few alterations to Colleen's quarters. The mobile home they were moving into didn't have a basement, so Cameron decided to build a special new box. This box was more like a coffin, and it fit just underneath the hooker's waterbed. Now he could confine his slave in a tiny box directly beneath him. He fitted the box with a small fan system and a bedpan, and Colleen would still be forced to live in this box 23 hours a day. While Colleen laid in her box, she could hear that Janice was also subjected to regular abuse from her husband. Soon, Janice and Cameron were pregnant with their second daughter. He forced Janice to give birth at home rather than see a doctor or go to the hospital. So on September 4, 1978, Janice gave birth on her bed as Colleen lay in the box beneath her listening to the entire labor. Eventually, the 23 hours in the box opened up to a little bit more freedom. Now that Cameron had grown more trust in her, he allowed her to go outside, sometimes even by herself. He was sure to keep her under the constant threat of the company, but Colleen gardened and occasionally talked to a neighbor. She took care of the little girls sometimes. Family and neighbors were told that Colleen was a live-in nanny, but no one knew that she lived in a box under their bed. Before long, he let her sleep on the bathroom floor, chained to the toilet, but with the opportunity to stretch out on a sleeping bag. In 1980, Colleen tried a new tactic. She told Hooker that she loved him. Her hope was that he might lessen the abuse if he thought she truly loved him and wouldn't do anything to break that trust. Perhaps her fake confession of love to Hooker worked because during the year of 1980, he allowed her to make a handful of phone calls to her family. Eventually, he surprised her with the good news that the company was going to allow her a trip home to see her family. Now, in order to allow this luxury, he described that she would have to pass a test. 
This test was him handing her a gun and telling her to put it in her mouth and pull the trigger. Now, it wasn't loaded, but she didn't know that. She did exactly what he asked and passed the test. And now they had a short trip planned to visit her family in Southern California in 1981. So at this point, she's been captive for three years. Three years? Well, just over three yeah, years. Yeah, I was going to say a little bit more because the baby came in 78. Okay. I watch a lot of documentaries with her, and I've never heard anyone ask her what went through your mind with that. Yeah, I were wonder you if hoping? I just have it. Yeah, I mean, it's. There's got to be a part of you hoping that or okay with maybe not hoping, but just like, okay, if it happens, it happens. Yeah, like, please, that's my only out at this point for relief. Now, the one thing that she talks about a lot is how religious she was. And honestly, to her, that is the only thing that kept her through it is that she spoke to God regularly and actually heard him a few times. In fact, she said the day she got abducted, they had stopped at a small gas station and she was allowed to go use the bathroom, obviously, because she wasn't a slave yet. And in the bathroom, she said she heard a voice clear as day say, jump out the window and run. And she ignored it. And then from that day on, she thought, you know, it was her biggest regret. But she heard that voice every once in a while, you know, whether it's keep your mouth shut, say this, say yes, master, just to make it through it. And, you know, everyone needs something to fixate Mm -hmm. on. But, yeah, I always wonder that, too. Like, what went through her brain at that moment? If I ever get the chance to ask, I will. When Colleen was newly forced into captivity in the hooker's basement, confined and scared, the people in her life started to realize something bad had happened to her. Her roommates had expected her back in Eugene on May 21st. She was only supposed to be gone a few days. So they try to reach her at her friend's house in California, and that friend says she never arrived at the party, and they haven't spoken to her. By the 23rd, police were notified that Colleen was missing. Little progress was made locating her, and days turned into weeks. The family begins to panic. They decide to start their own search along the I-5. They stop in every town, adding flyers and filing missing persons reports. There were zero clues, and eventually the family started to grow used to her absence. After a few years, there was little hope that they would ever see her again. And then they got the call that she was coming to visit. Colleen arrived at the family's door, and they were pretty taken aback by her appearance. She had always had a childlike chubbiness, not overweight or anything, just a very healthy young person look. But when she arrived, she was dangerously thin. I'm talking less than 100 pounds. Her skin had lost its luster, and her hair was lank. She was wearing odd handmade clothing. Overall, she just looked like she had not taken care of herself at all. The man she was with appeared to be on the nerdier side, someone her sister would have never imagined her lively and popular sister to ever date. Cameron didn't stay long. He dropped Colleen off, reminding her that the company was listening, but allowed her to be alone with her family. They spent the day looking at old photographs and catching Colleen up on everything she had missed while she was away. Her sister was eager to find out where she had been and what she had been doing, but her stepmother reminded her that they needed to be very gentle with Colleen or she might run and sever all contact. Many people might be asking themselves right now, why didn't she tell her family what was happening to her? Why didn't they call the police? And the answer is Colleen was completely brainwashed at this point. She lived with over three years of torture, 
23 hours a day confined in a box. When taken out, she was beaten and she was raped every single day. That's over a thousand days at that point. What would you do? What would I do? I honestly think hardly anyone could endure that. With that kind of abuse, it's not even surprising. It's bizarre to hear because you think, how is that possible? Rare. All rare. you would, all you would think that, because when people put themselves in those positions, you're doing it with your brain right now. And as we've seen, even, even logical through, brain, yeah, even through quarantine, now we're a year in. I'm not doing so hot. My brain is not working how it was. I don't socialize the same and way. And imagine I did. you are only allowed to have one glass of water right. a day. You could only use the bathroom at one hour right. of the day. So you take all of that to the most extreme, and she's just happy to be sitting there and terrified about this, the company. I'm way more, hey, family, <laughs> you know, you were out Why searching you push for harder? me. How did you not? Note to you guys, if I ever disappear and I just show back up, you better close me in a room and call the cops and be like, we got to sort some stuff out first before well, and we you, even you talk about. It is the early 80s. Yeah. People, this is not a situation that people have ever heard of. That's true. Because now we have, I feel like there, I mean, there aren't a ton of these kinds of cases. We know these red flags now. But you know? there have been several. Um, I don't remember who it was. I want to say it was one of the Cleveland girls or it might have been that gal in Utah, that they went to go get a job or something or go get a bank loan. And that's when she finally spoke up. But she had been out living. So now we do hear of it. And yeah. go, that can happen. So people are more aware. So that totally makes sense. But yeah, it's way Absolutely. more to me on the family of just don't let her out of your sight. And as she was getting out of the car, he was like, your entire house is bugged. They will hear everything. Don't bring anything up. I mean, he was instilling fear in her mm -hmm. regularly. Mm -hmm. And she just wanted her family to be safe. So at that point, it isn't even about her. Exactly. She thinks she's saving their lives by keeping quiet. Yep. After a single day with her family, Cameron picked her up, and before leaving, they took a quick picture. In the photo, it looks like a young couple in love, but Colleen was faking it, thinking that she was protecting her family from the company. Her family watched her drive away, and it would be the last time they would see her for another three years. Now that Cameron and Colleen have returned to Red Bluff, things appear to take a step back. Cameron resumes forcing Colleen into the box 23 hours a day. She was no longer given the luxury of sleeping on the bathroom floor. It seemed like things were worse than ever. At one point, the entire family goes on a three-day trip, and while they're gone, Colleen is left in the box in over 100-degree heat with no food and no water. She manages to break out of the box, but rather than run away, she stays in the home until the hookers return. There was a span of three years while Colleen spent those 23 hours in solitude in the box. She was, of course, let out that one hour a day for her basic human needs, but if she was out any longer, it was because of her regular torture sessions and rape. Eventually, Janice learned that Cameron had been having penetrative sex with Colleen. This led to serious relationship problems between all of them. Cameron eventually demanded that Janice pull it together and realize that it was his right to have a slave or multiple wives if he so wanted, and maybe that's how she should think of Kay, as another wife. He then brought the Bible in to argue this, making Janice read to him about how wives and slaves are to be submissive. After Colleen had been back in the box again for many, many months, the often tenuous relationship between Janice and Colleen began to change little by little. 
Initially, Janice hated Colleen because her husband was clearly sexually attracted to her, and she held it against her that he wanted them both to be his wives. But now, Janice begins letting Colleen out of the box and reading the Bible together when Cameron's not home, allowing an opportunity for a bond to grow between the two of them. Towards the latter half of 1983, Colleen wins a bit of trust from Cameron, and she's allowed to sleep on the living room floor. She also goes back to helping with the children. When Janice goes back to work, Colleen stays home with the kids until they go to school. Once they begin school, the hookers allow Colleen to get a job, a real one, outside of the house. Of course, she has to give her entire paycheck to them, but it's still freedom. She starts working as a maid at a local motel called the King's Lodge. With Cameron's blessing, Colleen also starts attending church with Janice in July of 1984. By August of 1984, Janice has finally had enough. Perhaps it was her new bond with Colleen and the building guilt, or perhaps it was the multiple years of abuse she had suffered. She went to King's Lodge to meet with Colleen. There, after seven years, she finally told her the truth. There was no such thing as the company. The contract she signed wasn't real. The stories about the punished runaway slaves were not real. Cameron had lied to her in order to keep her as his slave. This came as a major shock to Colleen, who had believed every single word. But she took it in stride with the support of Janice. Together, they plotted their escape. They went to their pastor and told him enough information regarding Colleen being there against her will and that Cameron was abusive. He instructed the two to be careful not to tip Cameron off, so they acted as if nothing was wrong. They picked him up from work, they had dinner, had a normal evening. Then when he went to work early the next morning, the two women and the two children left the mobile home and headed to Janice's parents' house. Janice then purchased Colleen a bus ticket to go back home to Riverside, California. She handed it to her and said her goodbyes. When Colleen was 100% sure she would actually be stepping onto that bus and there was no way Cameron could stop her, she called him. She told him she knew he had lied about everything and that she was leaving. And all he could do was cry. It's as if he knew his dream was over. Do you happen to have the timeline from when Janice told her to when she left, when she was able to escape? Yeah, it's like a month. Okay, I was going to say that. I, went I would think that, but also not that quick, because I would think that would take some convincing. Oh, the timeline sure. from when she told her? Yeah, to uh, be like, okay, Janice, sure, there's no company. I've just been living in a box. You know, that would be really hard to undo I think it years. was a few days. It was like a day or two. Like, I, I don't think that mm. took very long. So where it went really downhill for Cameron is letting her and Janice bond and go to church right. because then I think Janice started thinking, this is really wrong and I can mm. do something about it. And they have this pastor and he can help and that and it just fell all into place. Yeah, at that, that is that is amazing that it went so quickly to undo all that fear and be like, OK, are you sure you're not tricking me, Janice, that you're not going to then report to him that I... I definitely think she considered that. I think I think that's why she was like, I have the bus ticket. There's yeah. the bus. I can call now because I know I'm getting on that right. bus. They're not there waiting for me. Right. That would have been an interesting test, though. When Colleen returned home and reunited with her family, she kept fairly mum about what she had endured the past seven years. She said she had been abducted and held against her will, but she refused to give them the horrific details, and she didn't want to go to police. 
This is, of course, a telltale sign of Stockholm Syndrome. The victim bonds with their abuser and eventually grows an empathy towards them and does not want to get them in trouble. Colleen also felt guilty that she had endured all of this. She thought she was so naive that she would believe all of these lies and that somehow that made like she didn't deserve justice or something. Now, this is fairly common with these types of victims. Eventually, her family was able to convince her that it was time to go to police. But that ended when she got a phone call from Janice, who she stayed in regular contact with. Janice had stayed with her parents for a disappointingly short period of time. She decided to attempt to make it work with Cameron. Perhaps with Colleen gone, they could return to being the only two people in their marriage. What she failed to recognize was that from 1980 to 1983, Cameron enlisted Colleen's help to dig a large hole hidden in their shed. This was going to be turned into a cellar-like room where Cameron could hold multiple slave girls. He had fully intended to have more slaves. That's all he wanted in life. But in her eyes, he had tried to change. She convinced Colleen over the phone not to go to police and described how he was making an effort. He began to go to church with her and seek counsel from Pastor Dabney. One night, he even had the idea to burn all of his sinful pornography, S&M gear, and photos of Colleen and Janice. And while they burned that previous sin away, that didn't stop him from accumulating more. Eventually, Janice realized it was beyond her control. He wasn't going to just get rid of this dark side of himself. She finally left the house for good. She went to Pastor Dabney and told him everything, the real story, all the dark details that she had left out previously. On November 7, 1984, Pastor Dabney picked up the phone and called police. Janice spent hours detailing what Cameron had done and what he had forced her to do to Colleen. When Janice described to investigators what happened to Colleen, she made it clear that this wasn't the first time that it had happened. Cameron had tried all of this before with another girl, but she had died. Early in their relationship, I mentioned that Cameron introduced sadomasochism into his relationship with Janice, but she had a very hard time with it. She didn't like the physical pain. Cameron basically said that's what he needed, and if she couldn't give it to him, someone else needed to. This is essentially how he convinced her that a slave would be the ideal situation. He could take out all that pain on someone else and the sex and the marriage belonged to Janice. His first attempt at finding an outlet for this pain wasn't Colleen, but another hitchhiker that they had picked up the year before Colleen's abduction. Janice tells police that her and Cameron were driving around when they met a girl named Marie Elizabeth Spanicky, known as Marliz Spanicky. At first, police didn't take stock in the story, but after calling Chico police, the location and the timing lined up. Marliz had moved from Ohio to California in 1975. She was working as a part-time model and living with her fiancé, John Baruth, on Parmac Road in Chico, California. The last time John saw his fiancé, the two were at a flea market in Chico when they got into a fight. Marliz walked off and John never saw her again. Initially, police suspected John had murdered her, but he was cleared after passing a polygraph. But now Janice has described that not only did they pick the girl up, but they took her home and Cameron killed her. The two were driving when they saw Marliz was hitchhiking for a ride. Cameron pulled over and she hopped in after seeing a nice young couple. They drove the girl to her apartment as if they were going to drop her off, but Cameron quickly got out, attacked her, 
tied her up, and forced the head box on her, the same box that Colleen would later wear. They then waited to take her home until dark, but to pass the time, they parked the car in a secluded area with the girl tied up in the back, and they went to dinner. When it got dark, they drove home and snuck Marliz into the basement. Janice didn't stay. She went back upstairs and readied herself for bed, but Cameron had other plans. He wanted to make Marliz his very first slave, and he intended to cut her vocal cords so that she could never tell anyone what happened to her. While in the basement, Janice suggests that Cameron had hung her by her wrists and attempted to cut her vocal cords, but since he didn't know how to do that, it was botched. He then shot her in the stomach and pelvic area with pellets and eventually killed her by strangulation. Later that night, Cameron came to ask Janice for her assistance, and together they wrapped up Marliza's body, carried her out to the car, and drove along Highway 44 until they found a dirt road near Lassen Park. Then they got out and dug a hole and buried the girl. Police and prosecution agreed that they needed Janice's testimony in order to convict Cameron Hooker. Anyone who spoke to her could see that she was very much a victim. She had been with this abusive man since childhood. He was all she knew. In exchange for her testimony, they offered her immunity. Janice then decided to help police in any way she could. She attempted to take them to the area to locate the grave. Prosecutors were very interested in being able to add a murder charge. Unfortunately, after days of searching, they could not find a body. Without a body to arrest Cameron for murder, police started to worry that they might lose Janice as a witness if he's able to get her back under his control, which was very likely due to her years of conditioning. Their next step would be to travel to Colleen to validate the story that Janice described to them and hear what happened to her in her own words. She was, after all, the victim that got away. She should have a lot to say. With her family by her side, she spent hours detailing to investigators what happened to her. The abuse, the rape, the confined spaces. Investigators had pages of notes. They eventually asked her if she knew any other slaves Cameron had kept, and that's when they learned something interesting. Colleen mentioned that she could see through an opening in her box, and Cameron would set her purse there so she could see it. Now, I'm not really sure why, but next to the purse, he would prop up a picture. This picture was described in detail to police and was later matched to Marliz's school portrait. That picture was left there to remind Colleen what would happen to her if she tried to get away. Cameron often made references to cutting her vocal cords if she told somebody something, or worse, mentioning that he had done it before. Now there was a name to the picture he used to control her. Marie Elizabeth Spanaki's body was never found but everyone is certain that Janice was telling the truth and that Cameron murdered her. Cameron Hooker was arrested on November 19, 1984, for seven counts of kidnapping, rape, and sodomy, one count for every year he committed those acts against Colleen. When police arrived at his door, he didn't seem surprised. He didn't say a word except to ask for a lawyer. When his home was searched, police found the stretcher, the headbox, his bondage items, the dungeon he dug outside with Colleen in the shed, the one he planned to store his additional slaves in, and the one he forced Colleen to spend time in. At trial, defense claimed that at some point in Colleen's captivity, 
Hooker had let her go. And that date just happens to line up with the statute of limitations for kidnapping. So what he is saying is that, yes, he kidnapped her. But at some point during her captivity, he said, you're free to go. And since there's a three-year statute of limitations on kidnapping, that charge should be dropped. Hmm. Prosecution now had to find a way around that statute of limitation if their argument was going to have any footing. And just like we would expect with a trial against a white man, defense brought up Colleen's past sexual history, as if that had anything to do with why a man would kidnap and rape someone for seven years. They suggested that her hitchhiking was the culprit, that if she hadn't been so careless, maybe this wouldn't have happened. The main defense, though, was that Colleen was a girl in love. And they had proof, too. She had sent Cameron dozens of love letters. This shocked most of the people watching the trial. Defense not only had letters, they had phone records showing that Colleen repeatedly called Cameron at times when no one was home with him. A lot of people started to side with defense. In their eyes, this woman had every opportunity to get away from her captor. She must have loved him in order to stay. When Cameron took the stand, he also added to this narrative. He claimed that they loved each other, and the reason that there were accusations against him was a standard old catfight. Janice and Colleen were fighting over him. He also shocked the court with the suggestion that the women had their own sexual relationship together. This was adding fuel to the fire that Colleen's sexual history was relevant. Both women said that that wasn't the case, but that on a few occasions he had forced them to pleasure him together. He might ask one of them to fondle the other, but they had never had their own relationship. Prosecution focused heavily on the abuse and rape events that happened during captivity and the psychology that followed. In the Patty Hearst trial, Stockholm Syndrome was part of the defense. This would now be the primary focus of why Colleen Stan stayed and why she said she loved Hooker. If they can prove that his actions conditioned her to stay, they could avoid the statute of limitations issue. The prosecutor in this case, who is a total baller, is a young woman named Christine McGuire. She's a very good lawyer with a win rate of over 90%. She painstakingly went to court and outlined all of the tortures and sexual assaults. Here's a quick breakdown. About a year into captivity, after the daily tortures, he introduced rape. At first, it was just sodomy. Within the next year, he was regularly raping her with objects. That quickly escalated to oral rape, which was typically paired with being restrained on the stretcher. By 1980, three years with the hookers, Cameron was regularly raping her by forced penetrative sex. Colleen estimated that once he crossed that line, he raped her a minimum of one to two times a week. The best move prosecution had made was to bring a well-known psychologist, Dr. Chris Hatcher, to the stand. He was able to go through all of the atrocities to help enlighten the jury to understand how these events would cause a person to have a bond with their abuser. Not a typical brainwashing, but a repeated conditioning and coercion. He explained how it's not just forcing a person to do your will out of fear, but that, quote, their whole thought process and way of looking at the world has changed. I mentioned that this was one of the four components of Stockholm Syndrome. Keep in mind, the idea of Stockholm Syndrome was relatively new and experimentally used in court. However, with the descriptions and the demonstrations that would happen there in the courtroom, it was easy to understand how it would play a major factor. Prosecution wanted to ensure that everyone in that courtroom fully understood the conditions that Colleen went through. 
Replicas of the boxes that had been destroyed, the actual head box found in the hooker's home, were all displayed in court for everyone to see. They even had volunteers get inside the coffin-like structures to demonstrate how this woman was positioned 23 hours a day. They put the head box on and described how it felt. The jury needed to see what this woman endured up close and personal. This was the way to make them understand that it was not a girl in love. Good for that team. I know. And I will note what was really awesome is the prosecutor herself put that head box on. She said she wanted to know what it felt like. And within a second, she had overwhelming anxiety and could not even fathom that this woman had lived through it. Yeah. Colleen eventually took the stand. For three days, she sat there and relived her trauma. Every single detail of the interactions between her and the hookers. The entire room was in awe while she spoke. She kept her testimony concise and emotionless, which prosecution had worried about. But to Colleen, it was the only way she was going to get through reliving it. She needed detachment. And there in the courtroom, there sat a giant photo depicting one of the tortures she was describing. All day, the jury stared at a photo of Colleen strung up and naked. After over five weeks of trial, the jury was sent into deliberation. They spent two and a half days and eventually found Hooker guilty in 10 of the 11 counts against him. This included kidnapping with use of a deadly weapon, forcible oral copulation, penetration with a foreign object, forcible sodomy, and six counts of rape. A few weeks later, they all went back into court for the judge to sentence Hooker. He gave him 104 years for his crimes. He said to the court, quote, I would like to say that I consider this defendant to be the most dangerous psychopath I've ever dealt with. Hooker went to prison on November 26, 1985. His sentence would have to be fulfilled until 2022, where he could then apply for parole. But California later passed a state law that would allow elderly prisoners to be eligible for early parole release. I was just going to say, I can't believe that that judge actually did the right thing and saw through all the BS and gave him this huge sentence. I can't believe the jury saw it. I can't believe she was able to go on the stand for herself because you know that defense team was, but you were in love with him. But what about this? And he was a total sleaze, by the way. Ruin it all. I know. So due to this law, Cameron Hooker's sentence was reduced to 74 years, which is still a pretty strong sentence. But he became eligible for parole in 2015. So he applied like any inmate in his position would, and it was denied. A relief, right? Well, I'm here to tell you that he is once again eligible for parole. His hearing date is set for March 30th, 2021. That's just two weeks from now. This date is actually the earliest possible release date he could have. He earned this for fantastic behavior. Colleen Stan, who had previously changed her name and moved on with her life, getting a degree, getting married, starting a family, writing a book, is now back in the media spotlight fighting against this possible parole. She's made it clear that she thinks he is a danger and likely a repeat offender. Colleen is very open about the extreme suffering she's had post this traumatic time with Hooker, failed marriages, regular physical pain, traumatic stress disorder, issues holding a permanent job. She's a survivor and has been hailed as such. And while she's able to speak to others about her ordeal, she has a daily impact that isn't visible to other people, even the people that idolize her. We just don't see that daily pain. She spent 2,640 days in captivity. 
He disturbed her life, and even from behind bars, he's in her mind every single day. I have, um, I have the answer here. Let's not worry about parole. Let's say you only have to do 2,000-something more days. You'll be in a box. You can come out for one hour, and we'll just pick a different inmate every day that gets to rape you. A and, lot of people might agree with you And there. then in seven years, we'll check in with you, see how you're doing. Now, there's still a chance he's going to stay where he is. Back in July of 2020, the State Board of Parole Hearings made a referral for Hooker to be evaluated. He falls into this category recognized as sexually violent predator, obviously. Now, since he had committed these crimes in that category to one or more people, paired with diagnosed mental disorder, one that is not disclosed to us, he is, and I don't think this is going to be a shock here, a threat, and he'll likely engage in this behavior again. Last month, on February 12th, Hooker was moved to a secure facility until he can have that hearing on March 30th. Then, depending on the results, he'll either be paroled or he will resume his residence in the state facility. All right, hit me with them questions. The nerve of parole. I just... You know, and I know we got to draw a line and he, he they can't pin him for murder. And had should, he got the murder charge, be, parole needs to exist. Most people should be out on it. Not this guy. Drug charges, that kind of stuff. To have done that to some, I mean, I think it just shows his level of depravity and mental well-being to be like, but I sh it's my turn to get out. <laughs> and, and he was smug. Oh, he not was shocking. He even like his name's Cameron. He thanked the judge because he gets free internet and free TV and all this stuff. And he didn't have to be around those two women. He <sighs> said that in court. People like that make it really hard to be against the death penalty. I found it interesting that he had killed someone via strangulation, which is a very intense hands-on hands-on interactive but that that wasn't his goal. I find that very interesting that it really was just to have a girl. Because you hear about people that the guy in Cleveland, he just collected women or other people where they went through women. They were a serial killer, but they did it through that kind of means of kidnapping someone. So it's interesting that it really was just it was, that kept. I think, uh, panic. So mm. he wanted the slave. He thought, oh, I have this great idea. I'm going to yeah. cut her vocal cords. Oh, wait, I'm not a doctor botches it right. and realizes she's making noise, trying to get away, and then he panics and needs to kill her. And I think he, you know, he thought maybe he could do it with a pellet gun, right. which interestingly enough, police went back to that house on Oak mm -hmm. and they did find pellets in the basement. Oh. So that is another factor of Janice's story that rings true. So I just don't think after all these years, yes, she made some questionable choices. I don't think she'd lie about this. Right. And... And it's not out of his character. He's a monster. And I'm, I know in the dark, in the woods, you're not going to remember where you mm -hmm. buried her, especially because it was snowy at the time. Not to belittle it or to make it a joke or anything, but for me, as someone that has such horrible memory problems, I find it kind of amazing that she didn't die of starvation or dehydration, that they didn't forget. I know, especially after the trip they took. Yeah. Like so you have she this was thing, close there. out of sight, out of mind. 
And then, oh, yeah, did anyone? Well, Cameron's incessant need to cause physical harm to someone saved that, I think. Yeah, that's true. I know but... she was quietly in there. And at one point they gave her like a radio when she was in the, the bed mm -hmm. uh, box. They gave her a radio she could listen to. But yeah, to just go out of town like she was some cat, you could leave a bowl of food out. They didn't give her water. They lived in the freaking hot area. Yeah. It's insane. And then the other baffling thing, they had two children yes. who didn't know she was in there. Oh, they didn't know? No. Oh, that's he great. He snuck her in and out, so they thought she was just their nanny. Oh, well, that's good. I, I mean, guess, at least, but I mean, obviously, scary. obviously, they're having a horrible life situation and an abusive oh, father yeah. and a mm -hmm. monster of a father. Who knows what they went through? A traumatized mother and all of that. I actually was going to say, did he not just do this with Janice because of the kids? Was Did you read anything of, you know, why wasn't Janice, whether she likes it or not, it's not like Colleen was, oh, yeah, I'm super into this. Oh, no, he did it to Janice, too. They even had photos in court. Right, but he didn't, like, box her or do that kind of thing or just mm. keep her? Is I, that well, because she was she the was caregiver elevated, for the kids? Elevated the wife, yeah. Right. I think he did have, you know, an actual marriage with her. Mm. So that's probably easy to almost layer your slaves. Yeah. You know, this one's more important because she is my child's mother right this is the one that i take it all out on but she still suffered brutally oh absolutely so in court they talk about how they found a remaining picture of janice who was also on the same rack mm. pregnant Oof. i don't know if it was the first child or the second but you know he they also found a, a picture of her being held underwater in a river so like he was doing this stuff Did, to were her. there any charges regarding janice no. either towards her or her towards cameron nope Nope, mm. they just used her as that that witness testimony. Right. In your research, did you see anything about what Colleen's family thought when she went home? Did they yes. think she was on drugs? Did they think she... They thought she joined a cult. Now, think about that for, for a minute. I think I might think the same. She doesn't say anything, comes home, looks totally mousy and homemade clone. I would think, oh, yeah, she's on some weird hippie commune. You know, right. maybe she was into drugs. Yeah. And but, I guess if she's, you know, hitchhiking around and. But I think out of that fear of not wanting to scare her off, they just never asked. And she was only there for one day. So the sister was like, oh, I got to ask. I got to do that. And everyone else was like, no, like leave her alone. And she had thought she was going to spend the night and be there another day. But Cameron ended the trip early. Was she so gone mentally with everything going on that she was just kind of numb and just went and saw family and went home? Or was she sitting there? She was desperate I to see them. Please, like wanting to scream out or drop clues. Or... She talks a little bit about it. So there is a, a documentary that's fairly new. It's a two-part documentary called Calling Stan, Girl in the Box. You can see this on Apple TV or on the A&E Crime Central app, which... Hot tip, you can get a two-week free trial through Amazon Prime. So that's what I did to watch it. And it is really good because it is all narrated by Colleen. Oh. So they have other people on. You know, they have the the defense – or excuse me, the prosecution. They've got um, the main detective. And they all talk about it. But Colleen is really narrating it with her point of view. And there are times where it's almost like it's superficially choked up. Like she's mm. spent so long suppressing these emotions that she's trying to find a way convey them, to convey them. Like the TV was like, you need to tell us, oh, you need to show us. Okay. But she does talk a little bit about that. But really, it was um, I just want to see them again and I don't want them to be murdered. It was I think it was just a desperation to see their faces. Yeah. Her sister said that. Before she was abducted, there were a lot of people in the family Colleen didn't get along with and that when she returned 
everyone could see her just making such an effort to connect with everyone and to just squash anything. It's like she truly learned what life was really about, which is, I mean, I don't know. It's kind of obvious when you think about it, but I don't know. That's kind of sweet. Yeah. Yeah. At least something positive. But it's hard to watch. It's hard to listen to her describe it. And they forced her. (laughs) When I say forced, I know she agreed to it. But they took her to the original house and into the basement. And she was like, you know, I was actually just going to ask about the house. It was was rough. So she said, um, do people live there? Yeah, you can find it on Google. I'm sure they paid her. Ding dong. Hi. Can we come visit your freaky basement? Did you know that this happened here? She's standing there and she said, oh, I'm sure they do. They probably make money off of it now. But she's standing there. She goes, it looks different. If it didn't, I couldn't be in here. But she's like, I Mm. am getting memories from sight and sound and the smell. And I, I can't imagine what that's like. And you see how small the stairs were where her her sitting box Mm. would have been. And. That when was you, when she was doing the deshelling. De- yeah, when you really realize how small these boxes are, it is even worse. Right. Even worse. And that's why I think that was so important for the prosecution to replicate those mm-hmm. boxes in court so people could see. Imagine laying in that box for 23 hours. Imagine right. the sores on your body. Uh, well, she has, just imagine the mental toll of that. Yeah. I and to be like, oh, no, you'd still be capable of falling in love with someone. I like, can't even watch what? TV without having a cell phone in my hand. I mean, right. like how? What? Yeah. How do you pass that time? And she's got permanent back problems. From oh, that, obviously. Not surprising. Mm. Was there anything about Janice's backstory? Because I would find that fascinating because... Not a lot. You can't even really find her maiden name. I would Um, kind of guess not great, only because most people that end up in abusive relationships come from abusive backgrounds. Yeah, I got that impression. So I read a book on this subject called Girl in the Box. Or wait, no, it's called Perfect Victim. The Mm. book is called Perfect Victim. Now, it does not cover a whole lot of her history. Mm. I know very little. I searched many, many many websites to try to find a maiden name or something and I don't know if it's just tucked away or what it sounds to me like she her household was a little bit oppressive Mm. I mean 15 years old suddenly in a serious relationship with a fully grown man it makes me think they didn't really care about Mm -hmm. her didn't pay her attention and he probably saw her vulnerability or previous victimization oh yeah he said that I mean so a mutual friend introduced them and he liked her because she was submissive and mousy right. and had zero experience with men. And all she was like, oh, my God, this tall six foot man likes me. I would want to see a film of this, like a major motion picture through Janice's eyes. Actually. So it's not totally through her eyes, but there was a made for TV movie on Lifetime called Girl in the Box. And it came out, oh, gosh, maybe 2009. I rented it out of Redbox because I knew the case and I was like, I got to see how accurate this is. That's my first thing. Right. I was like, how accurate is this? It's pretty good. So the, I think the hardest part about this case, which was hard for me to even do today, was to really convey the timeline. Mm. And they did a great job. So what they chose to do in the movie was Janice gives birth. The girl gets to meet the baby because Colleen does meet the baby. Um, Cameron let her out to like see it and then put her back in the box. But then they show the girl as like a toddler walk up to her mom and say mom and and Colleen's with her and Colleen goes what is that the baby she had no idea how long she'd been in the box time was just nothing to her she literally lived abuse to abuse you know oh yeah well and you would be so 
disconnected. So I just I thought that was a clever choice to convey because that's the hardest part is you need to really sit and think about how long she was captive because Mm -hmm. they call there was this year where she was free and that was the year where she could sleep on the bathroom floor and have a job or whatever. But for the most part, I mean, she was not anywhere close to it. And it mm-hmm. it's easy towards that end, towards that last year to think, well, maybe it wasn't as bad as you think well, it was. Well, it's easy, too, to just be, and then three years later. But if you mm-hmm. stop and you go, okay, look at the last year of our lives and go, oh, my God, the days three are long. straight and years that it, I, I don't even want to watch TV anymore, you know, all these privileged things. And to stop and go, okay, so this last year, okay, but it was in a box under a bed every day. Yeah, and then do that terrible. seven more times. It's real. It's you can't even she, fathom it. She couldn't go get a glass of water. She couldn't take a shower. It was. It's just the most controlling thing I've ever heard of yeah. in my life. Yeah, it's really far more disturbing for her and disturbing as to what he's capable of in my eyes than than that serial killer. The serial killer goes and okay, you did this thing and. Not that you understand, but you can go, okay, it was a power move or, oh, your mommy issues and your wife issues and you're taking it Mm -hmm. out on this girl you found on the side of the road, whatever. This kind of thing where it's every day and you just have a person in your – like that is so extreme. I sometimes wonder if he hadn't had Janice or kids – what it would be like. Yeah. Would he be a serial killer? Would he just go through slaves and get rid of them? But isn't it interesting that he even bothered, if you will, to do that, that he still wanted that perceived normalized uh, Americana life of, well, I'm married and I'm... So was that he was seeking normalcy or was it he wanted to present normalcy? Mm -hmm. Yeah. But yeah, I... uh... But anyway, that movie, though, it's it's good. It's it's fairly accurate. It's short. Uh, The Janice is played by Robin Williams' daughter. Oh. She does a great job. Um, So anyway, I... I mean, if you want a little bite-sized nugget of visuals, they do yeah. a great job of showing the, you know, the boxes and it's not too graphic because it's lifetime. Uh, but the documentary is really good for a perspective on on Jan or excuse me, on Colleen's point of view yeah. and the struggles. Well, and what hangs with me with Janice is that first moment when she took the baby over to the creek and she knows what he's about to do. Yeah. And on one hand, you want to get really pissed and go, how could you possibly... But on the other hand, pray. it's kind of like wallowing sh- with oh, the absolutely. kids. They were just getting a little bit of relief when exactly. that friend came into the household. On one, yeah, you're sitting there going, okay, I'm leaving this prey to just be consumed by this person. I so know I it's going to come to her. But also, I don't have to have it happen. But also, you're just standing there at the water. Are you even thinking anything? Are you feeling anything? Are and you- that's the thing. She was conditioned by the same abuses and the submission you Maybe better let wasn't. me do it she, or mm-hmm. you're going to be a single mom with no skill set or whatever because I have had no you since you were young. high school diploma. Right. And you'll have nothing. And the company's after you. I'm sure he played that same stuff into her a little – some degree of that because obviously, you know, she, uh, she, she knew, knew it, it was wasn't fake, real. But, you know, the threats are real. Exactly. I'm sure he had some form of that towards mm-hmm. her. Yeah. Um, now, a lot of people were pissed that she wasn't held accountable and – Again, you have to really sit and think about her life. She was a 15-year-old child when she met this fully grown man who, right from the beginning, 
turned physical pain mm -hmm. into the only kind of sexual contact she knew. Mm -hmm. um, so that same conditioning happened to her. And so I, I feel a, quite a bit of empathy to her because it is a self-preservation. You're doing what you need to to survive. And she came she came around eventually. Right. You know, I know it took seven years, but she did everything she could. Now, there were she swayed a bit when they were in trial. Uh, the family was really urging her to help them and the defense by pulling up the stuff like the letters on Colleen. Oh. And so I, I think she really went back and forth, you know, because she still loved him. Yeah. He's the father to my children and I'm scared of him. And but he's I can't, all I've I ever can't known. help but think of her as a victim. Absolutely. Absolutely. I think it's fair to be angry and say, not only could you have protected yourself and your kids, but also mm -hmm. this other woman. So that kind of has a place to go. But then on the other hand, it's, well, she was in the exact same position. She just wasn't in a box. Yeah. But the thing I think that really pisses me off is that freaking defense slimy lawyer and pulling up her sexual history. Like, I know it happens all the time for victims. It is a constant struggle. But you had a solid argument with the love, love point of view. Why did you need to talk about who she had sex with before... She was kidnapped because it was off the, the 80s, side of the road, baby. Oh, 70s, late 70s. No, well, by the trial, though. Yeah, sure. Yeah, that, that's just hard for me to see. At least they got him and they didn't go, she was hitchhiking. She That could have happened in the 80s and so early in Stockholm. It could syndrome. be Marliz. We, I don't know if we will ever find her, her bones, yeah. her body. I know these cases don't come up very often where someone survives being held. But it is fascinating and equally overwhelming to even think about mm. because there are so many people missing people in their lives. And you wonder if they're in like, this position. What is the percentage? Are they in a basement somewhere yeah. like the girls in Cleveland? Yeah. What house am I driven by? That... Especially when it's like a neighborhood house like yes. next door. Yeah. It makes you really wonder all the secrets people are keeping in yeah. their houses. Yeah. I'm like, I worry when my TV is loud or if my dog's barking or my window's open, I have music or going. My neighbor hears me fart or something. Yes. <laughs> With this case, I know a lot of people know of it and or maybe have heard a little bit about it, but I'm regularly shocked at how many people have not heard of it because it is shocking. I don't know. Is it one of those that it's too scary and possible? I think possible so. It's that... too real. It's too real that you could be an everyday person who gets in a car with a couple that looks normal and then, bam, everything changes and you are abused and taken advantage of and your life is pulled away from you and you never see your loved ones again like yeah, that is like a ultimate scary nightmare thing. scenario mm -hmm. yeah. so nobody should complain about covid yeah. <laughs> being stuck at home exactly is the moral and of the don't story. hitchhike guys yeah really don't hitchhike While she felt <laughs> while she felt <laughs> little progress progress <laughs> out through oh, that's not how I should talk. Oh, you're missing a word or something. What am I missing? Something that makes it make sense. Murder in the Rain is produced and edited by Josh McCullough. Written and hosted by Emily Rowney and Alicia Holland. Artwork by Jamie Costa. Music by Kai Pfeiffer at kyfifer.com. 
Check out our website, murderintherain.com, for additional information on all cases, a fun interactive map, and be sure to subscribe so you can receive our newsletter. Check out the Mad Props page for coupon codes from some of our sponsors. We love your reviews and seeing them on all streaming platforms, especially iTunes. And check us out on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter. And suck my balls. (laughs) Please put that in. (laughs) 